not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hello and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been sharing my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there and I hold space for your stories here. Well, 2020 has been a fantastic year so far for Quitlet. Excellent books about recovery just keep coming and you will want to make room on your bookshelves for something a little different than the usual how-tos and memoirs. The Sober Lush by Amanda Air Ward and Jardine LeBaire is a gorgeous keepsake of a book, beautifully designed, and it's been written by two accomplished and celebrated writers who happen to be friends as well as women in recovery. Together, these two explore all of the ways that their lives have become richer and fuller in the absence of alcohol and how recovery has challenged them to seek out beauty, comfort, joy, and indulgence with the new superpower of being completely present and grateful. Amanda is the author of eight novels, most recently The Jet Setters, and Jardine has written six novels, plus has written for TV and film, including the recently released movie Endings, Beginnings. Both are accomplished and talented, and yet, the sober lush, they embark on something new in exploring their personal stories of recovery and friendship. Amanda and Jardine, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having an honor us. to be here. It's lovely to have you, and I have so enjoyed your book. I am excited to talk to you about it, but first, on the Bubble Hour, our priority is to get to know you. So I'll have you each tell us a little bit about yourselves and about your recovery story. And Jardine, we'll start with you. Thank you again for having us. Um, I currently live in Los Angeles. I'm 47. And as you mentioned in the intro, a writer, although I've done a bunch of different kinds of work um, over the years, usually to support writing when writing wasn't paying the bills. Um, I live with my partner who is also in recovery. And we have a chihuahua named Loverman who is our uh, joy in life, you could say. Um, I grew up on Long Island, and looking back, I could say that I had a pretty free-range and sort of um, analog kind of childhood. It was really simple, not a lot of TV. My two brothers and I did, you know, a lot of stuff independently. We had bikes, and we lived by the Great South Bay, and we would, you know, go sailing, and I feel very grateful for how I don't know if it was being sheltered or just allowed to roam and be ourselves that that seemed like a gift to me in those years. Um, my family was very social. We were very oriented to having dinner together every night. My mom is a stunning cook and there was always drinking. Um, but it was also about eating and about gathering. So that was something that was established early that, you know, you, you, you commune with friends. 
Um, I went away to school when I was 14 and it was a really strict boarding school. It was also a big deal for me to go there for my parents to pay for it. And if I had gotten caught drinking or doing drugs there, I would be expelled. And so since that just wasn't an option for me in terms of getting in trouble and letting my parents down, I had what I think is an incredibly uncommon American experience, which is a sober adolescence. I pretty much didn't drink from 14 to 18 when a lot of kids are experimenting with it. I remember trying to. There were a couple summers where I would go to parties and I thought beer was disgusting and I truly didn't understand the whole um, phenomenon of it. I also had what I wanted. I had a bunch of misfit friends. I was already in love with writing and obsessed with writing. And we had a good kind of camaraderie, a good kind of crew that was based on loving the same comic books and loving the same music. And we would roam around in the woods. We had a treehouse out in the woods near the school and, and we would go to this rope swing and And we got a lot of that heightened experience that I would later find in drugs and alcohol. And in fact, later meant for me college. For some reason, the minute I got there and was allowed to do what I wanted, I went from zero to 80 and just immediately started over drinking and over using drugs. Um... I'd always been super shy, super self-conscious, and I'd had good friends from early in my life, but was socially backwards. And I just felt like I found the golden key. When I, when I learned how to get drunk and I learned how to get high, it didn't matter that I felt like I was going to die in the morning. The release from, from that you know intense self-consciousness that I'd felt since I was born pretty much it seemed worth it back then. Like I was willing, I was willing to suffer the next day if I could, if I could have that. So I spent those four years being extreme pretty much consistently and would do so for the next 22 years. I went to graduate school in Michigan and Like I did in college, I bonded with the same people, the people that were heavy partiers, the people that believed in partying. Um, Looking back, I realized a theme through my life was believing that there was some kind of like um, definitely hedonism, but also rebellion and creativity in drinking and drugs. I really thought it was the way that one is wild and original in this life. I had a lot of romanticizing about um, drinking and drugs. So I found the same kind of crew and did the same kind of stuff through graduate school. I also worked at two different bars at night. And that was, uh, looking back, a huge piece of the puzzle too. They were both, one was a jazz club and one was a kind of rock club. And I loved that fusion of late nights, forgetting what time it was, being drunk, musicians, people having fun. I compounded a lot of the stuff that I'd loved as a teenager into also being on substance. And I loved working. I I love bars and restaurants and the kind of 
work crews that are formed there. So that became a part of my identity also. Um, I moved to New York City after graduate school where, again, sought out the same people. And they were amazing people. And we had some amazing adventures. Every year, my hangovers got worse. The anxiety that I felt the day after got worse. It, it was kind of a snowball effect because I knew how bad I could feel. It somehow made the night a little bit darker and it made the mornings after or afternoons after, because I was kind of always a stay up all night, go home in the morning type. It made the next day darker too. But again, I had those heightened experiences. I had intense connections and I didn't know how to get those things in any other way. So I was really attached to a drinking life and a drinking identity. I would often go out all night, maybe sleep for like 45 minutes and then go to work. I'd be kind of dirty and smell like alcohol. And there was almost some pride to that. Looking back, I can see how the pride started to kind of fall apart a little bit, but I knew not a single sober person and I did not seek them out either. So when I was in my late 20s and was writing a book about a party girl, I had my first kind of moment of revelation. I was actually taking my mom to the hospital for wrist surgery. And it wasn't a severe surgery, but there was just something about it. And the vulnerability I saw in her and this moment of recognizing how life was so precious, it made me for the first time consider being sober and just trying a little sober period. And I actually wrote that into the novel I was working on at the time. So I was exploring sobriety in real life and also sobriety in this narrative. And I loved it. I think that first period was maybe 60 days. I couldn't believe how safe I felt to think you're not going to wake up tomorrow nor next week feeling terrified and sick and vaguely ashamed. You, you can start to rely on yourself and your own immediate future. Um, so I knew, I knew at that point, no matter what the subcultures I'd chosen were telling me, I knew that I should be a sober person. And it's easy for me at this point in my life, since I didn't get sober until I was 40 on January 8th, 2013. It's easy to look back and and kind of regret the time it took. But I also truly believe that we get to where we get to when we get there. And I'm really dedicated to just enjoying where I am now. I persisted in partying and occasionally taking 30 days or 60 days off during my 30s. Um, I'd figured out a cocktail of drinking and drugs that I could stay up all night and consume a lot, but still get myself home. Um, I had a lot of negative experiences, hanging out with the wrong people and being vulnerable that accumulated into the same sense, that same gut feeling of this isn't the right life. Um, I persisted in my career. I kept writing. I kept working and supporting myself. 
but it was at a great cost. I had friends, but I never had a good partner. It seems like you can only fit so much into your life. Looking back now, I kind of look at the equation and drinking took up such a huge space. There was room for work and friendship, and that's about it. Um, I didn't grow in a lot of ways that I that I now have seen myself grow being sober. Um, I did know of an amazing therapist, and I started seeing her. It was the first therapy I'd done in my life in my mid-30s. I had a fairly candid conversation with her over time about drinking. I was very embarrassed to talk about it, very furtive about reading books on sobriety, trying to track down stories. For some reason, I was just mortified about asking for help or talking to anyone about it, asking a friend to recommend a sober friend to me, anything that put me in touch with the quote unquote other side of the world, the the non-drinking side. But this therapist let me open up at my own speed. And eventually we had really healthy conversations about me deciding when I was truly done. And when I was, she put me in touch with an intensive outpatient program at the local hospital. And I felt like that was a really good intensive daily structure for me to get through the beginnings of sobriety because I'd gotten through these 30 days and 60 days so many times without being able to hang on to it. I would get too lonely. I would start being obsessed with what I was missing. I would start worrying that I was somehow displeasing people by being sober and opting out. I was so worried that they would feel I was judging them by me being sober that I literally would abandon something that was making me feel so good and safe. Um, So the outpatient program was miraculous. It was like being in a little cradle or something I felt taken care of. I knew I would go there every day every evening. And, um, there were people there that were there so that we could help each other and so that we could be honest. And after that, I kind of took two steps forward and one step back in, in finding meetings and in finding sober allies and also in finding a new identity and ideology. But what it led me to was a friendship with Amanda and writing a book about the many things we've discovered and want to discover about sobriety. It is nothing like what I feared it would be. I had this absolute dread that sobriety would have to be humorless and serious all the time, that I would have to be measured and rational and constantly involved in self-care, that there would be no more heightened kind of ecstatic life. There would be no more intense connections and um, wildness and wild creativity. And I couldn't have been, for myself, I couldn't have been more wrong. By being sober, I've been able to take massive risks in my career and in whatever I'm working on at that time in individual projects. I can watch myself be able to take greater chances. Um, And the book, The Sober Lush, that we've done together is, at this point, the cherry on top because it's doing all that and it's doing it with an amazing person who I met 
in sobriety. And um, friendships like this have been the foundation for, for my current sobriety. And I think that's my, that's my story. Thank you for sharing, Jardine. I love your take on the intensive outpatient program, IOP. I feel like that is uh, kind of an unsung hero in recovery programs that so many people think, well, rehab, I'm not, I don't want to go to rehab. I can't leave my life. But I love how you say that it was just, you know, a nurturing place that you could go to in the evening. So an outpatient program is something that you commit to and go to regularly and, but you're, you're living at home or off site while you do it. And, um, I love that that was the thing that helped you transition from stints of sobriety into a life of sobriety and what a life it is. Yeah. Amanda, tell us your story. I would love to. And it was so fun to listen to Jardine. I know a lot of your story, Jardine, but not all of it. So that was really amazing to hear you tell it. So I was also born in New York, but in the city. And then we moved to the suburbs when I was five and um, lived in a very fancy house. My dad was extremely successful when I was young. I had two sisters and, um, we were always uh, wearing beautiful clothes and kind of done up. And my mom was very beautiful. And I think on the outside, everything looked um, perfect. On the inside, my home was pretty tumultuous. My dad was an alcoholic, um, very volatile. And I can't remember a time when I wasn't terrified to be at my house. So um, this is something that I've also explored in a lot of my work, this sense that um, what appears to be one way on the outside is not always that way on the inside. And so I, when I was 14, started drinking, somehow deciding that the way I would rebel against my alcoholic father was by drinking a bunch of wine coolers, which looking back is obviously the wrong way to go, but at the time felt great. Um, I associated rebelling with drinking and I, in ninth grade, failed math and gym and um, was pretty wild and popular and everyone thought I was fun and it felt great at the time. Um, I went to boarding school as well and uh, kind of got my act together. I mean, I, I always had, and I feel so thankful for this, and I think this is a lot because of my incredible mom. I always had a voice inside me that would say, you know, this is not entirely who you are. When I failed out of school, for example, it, it, it felt wild and exciting, but I definitely had a voice that said, Amanda, this, you're better than this. And in boarding school, I started working hard at writing. I'd always been a huge reader. I would say before I found wine, I used books to escape and I use them still. I could be in a situation and be absent at the same time by opening a book. And later, wine gave me the same ability to just sort of be absent in my own life when it felt painful. So I graduated from boarding school, um, went to college in Massachusetts, a very fancy college. I was really proud to go there. But as Jardine said, exactly knew how to find the wildest friends. I knew how to find the people who, when I look back, you know, drank the most. 
I don't know where they've ended up, but certainly I drank a ton all through college. I blacked out for the first time in high school and it took me a while to understand that that was different from people I knew who said they passed out. I sort of thought that's what they meant. But um, I mean, when I was quite young in high school, I would be awake and talking to people for hours that later I would have no memory of. And it was horrible and terrifying. But I dealt with all that terror by drinking more, I think. So I um, traveled for a year after graduating from college. I went to Greece and Egypt. I found amazing, creative people. Uh, We always drank a lot, had all kinds of adventures. And it felt like connection to me when I would be um, in Egypt at a bar, meeting people I would never talk to again, having long conversations I couldn't remember. It felt as if being drunk, I could get rid of my shyness and meet people. So I felt connected, but the types of connections never lasted and, and in retrospect were pretty thin. And I blacked out a lot and I was very hungover and then would just go right back at it. So traveled for a while and then ended up in graduate school at the University of Montana. It was a very hard drinking program. My idols, Richard Ford and Raymond Carver and Dennis Johnson, were all writers who wrote about drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And um, I fell right in line. I was the only woman actually in that program. So I, I really related to drinking whiskey, smoking cigarettes, and trying to be a writer. That was all I wanted. And I met my husband there, who's a geologist. And we eventually moved to Austin and got married and had children had three kids, and I continued to drink pretty heavily. I switched to Chardonnay, which seemed more mom-like, I guess, but I definitely sought out friends who would share wine with me. And a lot of parenthood is really hard. A lot of sharing, you know, the, the tasks of parenthood is really hard. And the way that my husband and I, the shortcut to us for connecting was, you know, opening a bottle of wine and sort of exhaling and saying, oh, now we're we can connect and feel like adults. And so I didn't really learn any other tools to access relaxation or um, privacy or connection other than wine. But it would give me a shortcut to those feelings. For and In fact, it always did till the last day. But the price for that got worse and worse. And blacking out when I was supposed to be you know, taking care of children was a whole different story than blacking out while you were backpacking around Egypt. (laughs) So I just started to be really disappointed in myself all the time. Um, And I quit a few times. I went to AA for a while and then actually told myself, oh, well, now that I have all these tools of recovery and, uh, you know, trying to give up control and believe in a higher power, I can go back to drinking and it won't be problematic. And I told myself that for a while. And It was just something I wrestled with for so long. And looking back, I spent so much time and energy on this struggle to keep wine in my life. And when my husband and I traveled, we drank a lot. We had wonderful adventures. But again, I always thought that the only way to to find that sense of hedonism, debauchery, and thrills was through drinking too much or drinking at all. So I write about in the book 
the New Year's Eve party that we had. This was a little over four years ago where I woke up in the morning of a new year and I didn't remember the end of my own party. I remembered getting ready. I remembered welcoming people. I remembered some of the conversations, but then it was just as usual, a black hole. And my son was, a, one of my sons was asleep next to me. And I just had the familiar dread, this absolute belief that something horrible had already happened, that I was doomed. I mean, it's doom was the word, is the only word to describe it. Just this fiery doom feeling that I'm honestly, what keep one of the things keeping me sober is that I'll never feel that way again. <laughs> Even talking about it makes me kind of cringe. So I told myself that New Year's Day that I would never have more than four glasses of wine again. For me, I wasn't worried about drinking. I wasn't even worried about drinking too much. I was worried about blacking out. So I thought if I never had more than four glasses, I wouldn't ever black out again and I'd be fine. So that worked for uh, about a month. And then I went uh, on a work trip with all these other really famous writers and I drank a lot and I blacked out and I woke up in my hotel room, not remembering the end of the night. I, and I later, somebody posted on Facebook a picture of me at a bar that I didn't remember the picture being taken. And I had, apparently they were closing the bar. So I ordered a double Chardonnay to go. <laughs> so, which tells you something when you order a double Chardonnay to go. And I, I woke up that morning and said, okay, now, now really I can never have more than four glasses. So then I changed my life for a few months where I would go to parties. And as soon as I finished my fourth glass, I would leave because I knew, I knew I would have a fifth if I stayed. And there was a Texas book festival. They have a beautiful black tie party. And I had a little soiree beforehand and I was all dressed up in this gown and all my friends came and at my, um, cocktail party, I had four drinks. So I knew I couldn't go to the actual event. And I remember sitting outside on my deck in my pajamas thinking, wow, so this is how it's going to be. I'm not even going to go to things to ensure that I won't drink too much. And, and I was willing, I was willing to make that deal with myself, but I was recognizing that it was sort of a sad life. And I went to my birthday party, I remember, and left in the middle, suddenly grabbed my husband, said, we have to leave. We have to leave. I've had my four glasses. So finally, um, on Easter of that year, we um, hid Easter eggs with my friends. I have a lot of friends who are wonderful cooks. And it was this cozy Easter with our families. And we were sipping pink Prosecco. And it was a wonderful day. And then it cut to me waking up at three in the morning on the couch at my house, having blacked out. And I also write about this in the book, that I heard that familiar voice saying to me, this is not your life. And for the final time, I listened and realized this is not my life. I don't know how bad it's going to be to be sober. I have no tools. I have no sober friends. Um, but it's but there's no, I have no choice anymore. I cannot keep from blacking out. If I ever have a glass of wine, eventually I will black out again and I can't do that anymore. So I saved myself and that was my day one. So how does it feel to tell your own story after years of writing fiction <laughs> and telling stories of characters to 
you know, step into the limelight yourself with a nonfiction book that is a little bit, it, it is a memoir, but it's also, it's a wonderful collection of thoughts on recovery and life and the richness of life. But are you both feeling a little vulnerable right now? Are you taking it in stride? Amanda, how does it feel for you? It is not a comfortable place for me at all. <laughs> I probably should have prepared better for this. I wrote it and it was like I was writing it in this private room with Jardine and I always feel so safe with her and it was like we were writing it together and it, I never I, ne- I don't think I thought through what it would feel like to have it come out and I feel a little bit like a fraud like what do I have to say what do I know you know I'm still learning this every day so to some extent I'm thrilled for it to be out in the world because I would have liked to find a book like this and I'm really excited at the thought that maybe someone who needs to quit will decide to quit or be inspired to drink less from this book. That would mean everything to me. It would be a use for all the misery that I went through. Um, but I'm really uncomfortable talking about it. We talked about this a little bit. It's, um, you know, AA is anonymous. And so it's strange to come out and, and talk about it. Yes, you ha- you and I connected through an online group to begin with. And we did have a conversation, didn't we, about stepping forward and telling your story and shedding anonymity and, and all of that. I'm glad that you have chosen to do this because adding your writing skills to sharing your story it is something new and it is something different. It's a new tool for our toolbox. And I'm really excited about how this is going to help people. And as you say, it's it's the book that you would want that isn't out there right now. And so that to me is really exciting. Jardine, what about you? Are you uh, Have you always been out as a person in recovery or is this a new phase for you? I probably have been slightly more than not I think because when I did get sober, I was again working at a bar during that period and there was no getting around being clear to people that I wasn't drinking anymore. So it, it happened organically and I think I have more time and so have become more comfortable in figuring out how I want to share that with people. Over the years, it's definitely gotten so much easier and I've learned to recognize definitely that fraud feeling that comes over me constantly, as well as this fear that by putting my story out there, I'm saying, you know, this is a superior way to live and I know the right way to live. And we worked so hard in the book to make sure that wasn't the message. I know plenty of people who drink and drinking is lovely for them. It's not what it was for me. Um, This was my own experience. And I think parts of my own experience are similar to other people's, but it's not universal. And I've kind of let go of that fear. It comes up now and again, but that fear that people will think that simply by saying how I live, I'm somehow judging how they live. Um, And in publishing this book, that's definitely for the first time in a couple of years, come up a little bit, bubbled up a little bit more in my, in my psyche. Have you talked about this between the two of you and did you intentionally sort of decide on a tone or 
that idea of we don't want this to be a how-to or to be a prescriptive, you should kind of a book? Or did that just emerge organically? Did you sort of realize it was coming through as a theme as, as the book came together? I can answer that. It's a, such a great question, Jean. And I'm sure as a writer, you were able to suss this out. The hardest conversation we had over the course of the book was when I had sort of probably out of laziness veered into a bit of a how-to tone. And uh, well, I'll start with saying both of us had tried to write about our experiences. And for me, it had never really rung true. I wrote the essay about the jade earrings and then I kind of halted. And uh and then later, when we started writing together in the We Voice, the whole project just took on this tremendous, amazing momentum. And all of a sudden, I wanted to tell all my stories in that voice. It felt much less scary because I wasn't alone. It was we, this powerful, amazing tribe of, of sober women. We are doing all these great things, even though it, it's just me and Jardine right now. <laughs> but um, And then later, when we hit a point in the book where I had sort of fallen into this... Um, didactic tone, I'm so thankful that Jardine was um, strong enough to call me on it and say, you know, this is not where I think the book should be going. And I am not great with criticism. So it took me a day or two to kind of sit with it and then say, no, she's absolutely right. And I'm so glad. And what a pleasure to have someone that you're writing with that can kind of reflect on what we're doing. And we really, every chapter went back and forth in a really organic way, adding and taking things away but that was something I really agreed with. And so we were very careful. And even now, when we're asked to write essays, we're really veering away from how to or we know this, because that's just not what this book is. And there are books that do that beautifully. Mm -hmm. I love that because there is an aspect of recovery that there, there, there's different pieces of the puzzle that we need. We need the how-to and the memoirs that are, that are the traditional style of memoir are really helpful during that stage of change where you're sort of gathering information and thinking about things. But I also love that you're celebrating something with this book that is completely counterintuitive to all of us, I think, when we quit drinking, which is that we think we're giving up alcohol and we're giving up the good thing in life, like which for most of us has become the main good thing because we have absolutely blinders on to anything else that could be good. But um, I definitely saw alcohol, taking alcohol out of my life as a life of lack and of sadness and of, of sort of grayness. And Jardine, you mentioned this as well. So for you to celebrate that something magical happens, which is that when we stop numbing our bad feelings, we also stop inadvertently numbing our good feelings and our capacity to enjoy all these beautiful things grows in recovery, which is a complete surprise. So I got the impression as I read through the book that Jardine the, the lushness of life that you are someone who really oozes style and it comes sort of very naturally to you and that when the two of you got together, Jardine almost seemed to, Amanda, give you permission to start to experience this for yourself, to really feel those good things and to really allow yourself to 
dig into that sort of lushness of life. Is that an accurate reflection of how things felt for the two of you when you got together and started sharing your recovery as writers and friends? Well, certainly. So Jardine had been sober longer than me. And when I got sober, what I did was just, I went through every day and did everything exactly the same without wine. And it was terrible. You know, I went to the same parties and just stood there with a a glass of that Frey fake wine or a seltzer. Um, I still did too much and didn't trust my higher power. And, you know, I didn't have any tools. I just was like, well, I'm going to do this and life's going to be gray. And that's just the way it is because I have to quit. And then a friend, a mutual friend said, you know, Amanda, you should meet my friend Jardine. And I remember going, I've told this story before because it was so magical for me going to Jardine's house for the first time. And it was very early in my sobriety. And I arrived for coffee and her house was just so welcoming and elegant. And she had books I wanted to read on her shelves. And we sat and talked. And you know that incredible connection you have when you talk with other people in recovery, the right people when you just feel like you can say anything and I cried and I snuggled with lover man, the chihuahua. (laughs) I just, I looked around and I thought, Oh, this is what I want. You know, I, I don't have to just have a grim and gray life where I've removed my anesthesia. (laughs) I can build a whole new beautiful life filled with incredible things and my friendship with Jardine was the first incredible thing and I'm and then so together we talked about that and uh you'd already gone you'd already figured a lot of this out Jardine don't you think? Um, Some of it but our friendship and the conversations we had and then the conversation as it turned into this book just helped me grow so much more and you know, I think a man and I did a ton of work, like, because the book required it, zeroing in on the many different things we thought we would have to give up and lose. And it's been like a fourth wave of revelation for me, you know, deeper into sobriety to see, oh, yes, you know, communal gathering and eating that's been so important to me since I was a kid because of how I grew up. That is part of why I clung to drinking because I didn't want to give up that, that feeling. And so Amanda and I have been kind of forensically figuring out together, you know, how to break down this bigger idea of celebrating that sobriety can be beautiful into the many different little ways of, of, um, celebrating the, the hour that you're in or the thing that you used to do. So I think I had an inkling and then this has really fleshed it out, which has paved the way for the future for me. You know, one thing that really rang throughout the book for me is your friendship and that the two of you clearly adore one another. And I honestly can't think of another recovery book that demonstrates the power of friendship in recovery the way that the sober lush does without even trying. (laughs) Did you intend to capture this? We all know the power of connection and recovery and how important it is. And uh, I wonder if if this is a 
unintended consequence of this book, or um, if you really wanted to focus on that in doing it as a joint project. I mean, is it a project either of you would even consider on your own? Jardine? Oof, I don't think I had the courage to do it on my own. Um, And I feel like we both brought different perspectives to it. And especially Amanda being a mom, um, being a great mom is a really important story. So in some ways it had to be both of us and the, the kind of celebration of friendship, I think was mainly subconscious just because, um, I don't know it. I think it does infiltrate look, I'm processing what you're saying and looking at the book right now. And I think it just infiltrates the book because it was this thing we both committed to do together. And it felt natural then to, to be celebrating friendship along the way. I feel the same way. I mean, it's, it's really a pleasure after writing by myself for my whole career to be able to talk. I feel like I'm less scared to write things down because I can run it by Jardine and even the publication process as things have come up, it's been so amazing to be able to think, well, I'm going to talk to Jardine and then we'll see how we feel about this. And when I'm writing something and I hit a wall, instead of hitting a wall or banging my head against the wall, I send it to Jardine and I let <laughs> it go. And it's just, it's incredible. And she takes it and, you know, takes it in another direction or does something with it. So it's just incredible, honestly. Um, and then our friendship is just one of my favorite things. Yeah. I feel yeah. so lucky to have it. And I don't have that many sober friends. We were on another podcast with Casey and she was saying she has this wonderful group of sober friends in Seattle. And I was jealous because Jardine moved to Los Angeles. So I really need to make an effort to make some friends here in Austin who are sober. Um, but I talk to Jardine, hopefully, even when we're not promoting the book many times mm-hmm. a day, really. So we're pretty lucky. I'm jealous of your relationship as writers because I certainly wish I had a, a magical friend to... <laughs> bounce everything off of before I send it out. I mean, there's editors in this world, but there's, there's, there's something different in a a writing partner. That's really beautiful. I I love how you, and there's also something to be said for someone. I mean, we've had pieces of this project where one of us wrote something that was really beautiful and true and then said, I don't think I want, I don't think I want this out in the world. And we've had to work through that. And, and it's wonderful to always know that if I say that, Jardine will say, no problem, you know, we'll pull it, I'll help you with it. And so that's a, a whole nother level, because you're not necessarily going to say to your editor, you know, this is something I'm not sure about, or just personally. So that's pretty. I feel like that's where you both being women in recovery comes into play as well of just understanding the boundaries and the the experience of doing all of this inner work and reflection and revealing about ourselves and choosing what we reveal and what we don't. And I feel like that's especially difficult as we do for the first time or always step forward with our story and shed anonymity is understanding, you know, how, how much do I want to show? How much is safe for me to show or wise for me to show? And does this, does this suit my why for doing this? So I feel like those are some of the things that are really helpful to be able to bounce off of one another. 
with that in mind, um, do you do you have any suggestions when people are deciding whether or not to shed their anonymity and shine their light, whether it's, you know, as a writer or just in their community or in some capacity? Was there sort of any, did it feel like it just evolved for both of you for it to be the right time? Or do you feel like there's sort of anything a person needs to really think about and resolve for themselves before they make a decision like that? Amanda, what do you think of that? I think that one of the greatest gifts of my sober life is is hearing that voice that tells me where I'm safe and honoring that voice no matter what. Um, we write about this in so many different ways in the book. There's the chapter called The Vanish where, you know, we say you can go to any party as long as you know you can walk out at any time. And so I guess that's how I feel. I feel like the publication of this book is a party that I'm excited to walk into. And if at any point an interview or an essay or a conversation doesn't feel safe to me, I'll, I vanish and I'm okay with that. And um, just trusting my gut, you know, and believing that I'm not in charge of this ride has been a game changer for me. Oh, that's great. And I, so I'm glad you're still here. <laughs> you haven't vanished from this interview. So, so far, so good. <laughs> Jardine. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? You just know when it doesn't feel safe anymore. Mm-hmm. And so far, I still, I feel nervous, but safe. <sighs> Jardine, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Listening to Amanda say that, I'm thinking about how, you know, in the past, I think I would have felt very much, um, I always had a vague sense of obligation and indebtedness to do whatever was asked of me. If I got any work at all or any opportunity at all, I felt like I had to fill it. And what Amanda is saying basically is that that's not the case. You know, we get to to pick and choose um, and say when things are enough. And that's a skill I definitely didn't used to have. Um, and then I also think it was important in putting something out in the world like this that is complex and has a lot of different dimensions. We mention other people. We reveal a lot about ourselves. We did end up showing it to a bunch of friends in our inner circle first, which I didn't always used to do with work. I would just kind of throw it out into the world. And it felt good to ask for help and ask people to point things out and um, I, I would probably recommend that because it's this world, you're no longer just putting out a book, you're putting yourself into this wild wilderness of the internet and you want to have as much help as you can in crafting what that is that you, that you put out there, I think. So I know from my own experience as a, a novice writer, that one of the hardest things about writing a book is after you write your book and you've written 60,000 or 90,000 words, you have to write this thing called a pitch and a synopsis where you take your your big book and you boil it down to a few sentences. And it's to me, it's harder than writing the book in the first place. <laughs> so... As we uh, get close to the end of the hour, and I have so struggled to take this amazing 
piece of work that you've done and explain it to our listeners. I know that you writers have a pitch or a synopsis that you can give us. So, uh, Jardine, tell us in in your <laughs> oh in, in your um, in your best writer pitch voice, explain <laughs> the sober lush. What is this book? I love that you have faith that we would be able to pitch this. We have struggled. So much. <laughs> this book is like this little wild animal that is very hard to contain. Um, as you were saying earlier, it's got it's got some elements of memoir to it, but it's not quite. It's got a little bit of how to, but it's not quite. Um, so we settled on the idea that the sober lush is an ode and a roadmap to the technicolor and playful side of sobriety. So it's not about how to get sober or stay sober. I think both Amanda and I are on the side of, you know, that is for an individual to decide. I could not have gotten sober using a book. Um, Some people maybe can. But it's also not a book about just recovery or just substances. It ends up being about motorcycle riding and skinny dipping and honey and ice skating and all these other um, pieces of life. And, and that to us mirrors how getting sober was not even about sobriety in the ways that we thought it was, but, but about living and life. That's the best I can do. That's (laughs) Uh, bravo. Bravo. I'd buy that book. (laughs) I'll tell you what I love about it too, is that it, it strikes me as a book that is a wonderful book for friends and family of people in recovery because it shines a light for them of what this experience is like and hopefully shakes up some of their ideas about what it's what it is like for their loved one to go through this experience as a sober person. And there's a lot of really practical things in this book. There's a, a chapter that includes ideas on what are great gifts to give to yourself or others as a person in recovery and that and how to give those gifts so that they don't come from a place of here's a gift for you to keep you sober. (laughs) It's more, you know, here's a list of gifts that will celebrate being a person who's living wholeheartedly and wholly engaged and, and help you get through maybe a rough night where you really would rather have a glass of wine. Here's some lovely things from that. So I, I love the practicality of this book as well. I mean, even down to the fact that you have a section of recipes and the other thing about it that just delights me is how beautiful it is. Um, it really has kind of an art deco style, I think, to it. Like it is even just as a book to hold in your hand, really beautiful. And you must feel just so proud. However, it's coming at a time for both of you where you both have other projects that are huge and doing really well. Jardine, you have a film out right now that's fantastic and huge. And Amanda, your most recent book, The Jet Setters, hit the New York Times bestseller list and uh, was one of the picks for Reese Witherspoon's book club. I mean, do you feel like this book is sort of a, a I want to say a champagne cork popping, but a sparkling juice, <laughs> the pop of a, a cork on a 
some sparkling juice or a pop of, of fireworks? I mean, is it the icing on the cake for you or is it all in a day's work? Amanda? For me, this book really is the key to what opened, as Jardine said, it just opened my life. I don't think that I would have written The Jet Setters were I not sober. Um, it's about a codependent family on a cruise ship and, uh, and an alcoholic character trying to stay sober. Um, and I was told to wait for the miracle, and I did, and I did the work, and I'm getting the miracle, and I'm and I'm recovered enough to be proud of that, to be ready for it. It feels pretty good. Before I let you go, I want you to let people know, Jardine, where can people find out about you, about your work? And uh, Amanda, then I'll have you tell the same and where they can get The Sober Lush. So I can be found at www.jardinelebert.com and also on Instagram at Jardine LeBear Projects. And we've also created a little Instagram for the book itself called The Sober Lush. Thank you. Amanda? I am at amandaward.com and Amanda Air Ward on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, we're having a lot of fun uh, just starting up this Sober Lush Instagram account, getting to post because I want to post 10 times a day about sobriety and that's the place where I'm doing it. And it's pretty great. And the Sober Lush will be everywhere tomorrow. Well, and so that is June 2nd is tomorrow. We're recording this a little bit earlier. So by the time our listeners hear it, it'll be everywhere you buy books. I know it's going to be a gift that I give to a lot of people. So thank you both for being here. Thank you for sharing your stories and thank you for sharing this wonderful book with us. Thank you. Lovely. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. And listeners, that's all we have for this week. Uh, I do hope that you check out this book. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. As always, you can give your feedback to thebubblehour at gmail.com. I thank you for listening. Until next week, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see old, I did that. Not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession in ears. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror. And the one who matters most can always hear. When you say, oh, different, not proud.
just want to be free from the power Oh, you said I'm free When you said I'm old, I did that And I'm proud that that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from 